and then uh, uh, music business briefly. Oh. Yeah, a roadie for Metallica. Oh. Speed of sound tour. Mm-hmm. Bunch of assholes. You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, the podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kian, and as usual, I'm coming to you from the cabin in the woods, located for the duration of the lockdown somewhere in wild and woolly West Cork. Now, this episode is something of a follow-up to a an earlier one, in which my brother Donald and I talked about Slipknot and new metal and that sort of scene from the turn of the millennium. We had a good time doing it, and the episode received some positive attention, so we thought we'd have a bit more fun and uh, talk about music once again. So this episode is myself and my brother uh, talking about Metallica and the history of the making of the much-hated album Saint Anger. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Ian, I wanted to tell you that I'm madly in anger with you. (laughs) You had that planned. I certainly was, and it wasn't the uh, the only possible opening line that I had, but it was the one that I enjoyed the most. So we're ready to uh, to um, to pay homage or homage to our patron saint. Uh, today is Saint Anger's Day, as the uh, the corporate suits recommend be part of the marketing campaign of this. Yes, indeed, we're here to talk. We're here to talk about Metallica and uh, the Saint Anger album in particular, and. I think one of the reasons why they're worth talking about and they're kind of an always interesting and evergreen topic is they're not just another metal band, are they? They're somehow above and beyond and they kind of represented more than they really are, I think, to a lot of us um, of a certain age. And like growing up and stuff, I wasn't into them that much, but I still knew more about them than I really wanted to. Uh, and I think everybody knows something about them, even if they don't care about metal. They've heard of Metallica. They probably know... Enter Sandman, you know, they've kind of transcended the genre to some degree. Yeah, Metallica are a juggernaut, they're a colossus, they're way bigger than almost music at this stage, uh, certainly bigger than metal, you know, which can be alienating and, and has, a, has a certain kind of uh, connotation or, or even stigma attached to it that, you know, its, it's adherents proudly endorse and its detractors, you know, kind of uh, scorn. Metallica is above all that, while still being totally metal and being 100% um, like uh, okay in the eyes of even the most true blue metal fan, even if they want to um, kind of criticize some of the choices that Metallica made throughout their very long career, there's you, there's abs- like, like those kind of original albums, probably especially the three that they made with Cliff Burton are um, in the early to mid 80s are totally beyond reproach like nobody can criticize ride the lightning master puppets and even to some degree kill them all and then once you get to the black album and all that i think you know that's when the kind of real metal versus fake metal versus selling out versus all that kind of stuff comes in but metallica are so big that even people who don't really like music like them even people who don't like heavy music don't like them and then you've got the the you know the super self-conscious I am a metaler and I decide what we allow into Metalville and who gets expelled and all that. They like Metallica too. Even if they so only like the early one, the early stuff, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. If you want, if you exactly. want to go through the proper purists. Exactly. So they're they're good for the man on the street and the supreme kind of metal egghead who cares deeply about you know every chug. I would say that. Um, <laughs> Like Enter Sandman, for one, has transcended and entered into that kind of small, rarefied group of songs that you will hear anywhere. Like you might, you might hear them in a pub on a Friday night, you know, mixed in with a bunch of other classic rock from decades gone past, and it doesn't stick out. Like you know, it doesn't stick out. So that's that's kind of where they're at. The other thing I wanted to, one of the reasons why I think it's cool to focus on Saint Anger is I have a special love for the hated albums, the ones that, you know, went down as a stinker. And then you, I love coming back to them years later and just giving them another shot and coming to them out of context. So again, as not a big Metallica fan, really, I, I've been listening to St. Anger all week and just trying to think, well, if, if, if I'd never heard of these guys, what would I make of this album? And then we, we both watched or rewatched the documentary Some Kind of Monster, which was about the the, the recording and the writing of, of the St. Anger album, and I'm sure we'll have a lot to say about that too. Yeah, I think, for one, like, I agree with you that it's, it's fun to be kind of like the patron saint of lost causes and digging into the the infamous albums in a big band's back catalogue or the kind of universally derided, quote-unquote, mistake albums and trying to figure out where they came from, why they were made the way they were made, and to see, do they kind of deserve their reputation? I think that's a lot of fun. And then, like you say, the uh, the documentary "Some Kind of Monster" is just like uh, an intractable part of of the whole Saint Anger thing. I don't think you can really listen to the album without thinking about that movie if you've seen it. And I'd say that there aren't many, certainly no Metallica fans who haven't seen it. And it's uh, such a good documentary just in and of itself that you don't have to give a shit about Metallica to really get a lot out of it. And so it's just I think that there there are two a pair for sure. It's it's incredible to me how long ago that was now, because I suppose is it two? I think the documentary was two thousand four, and I think Saint uh-huh. Anger was two thousand three. It's a long time yeah. ago, and a lot has happened. And I guess in my head they were frozen at that stage for a very long time. Because as a as a casual fan, or not even a fan when I was younger, um, that was the main thing I knew about them. Really, was was stuff we read in Krang magazines, and then that film because of the time in which it came out when. It was still a pretty different age. I mean, I was I was thinking about watching it this week. Would anyone make this much fuss about, uh, you know, an album nowadays? And I don't think they really would because the album doesn't mean necessarily what it did back then. You know, because Lars Ulrich killed Napster. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 I mean, that that circle gets closed, or that loop, I should say, gets gets closed with that on um, that part. There, it all comes back to Metallica. No, I agree with you. It's it's. Uh, it's a big deal, but even still, like in the in the kind of uh, years since all of this, Metallica still took their bloody time making albums. I mean, they've only made I think three since then, if you include the yeah. Lu- Lulu album with Lou Reed, which is <laughs> quite quite the album. Well, uh, I I will I will always go to bat and say that I I really enjoy like Kiss's like misstep album. To, uh, music from the elder again as a not as a non-fan largely i came to it without preconceptions and i enjoyed it for what it was instead of you know being disappointed because it wasn't much of a kiss album and i i'll happily go to bat for that any day 
but I, I have more mixed feelings about St. Anger. Like I can 100% I had fun with it, but also 100% I can see why people had such a reaction to it. And I, our, our friend Frag said to me this week, it literally turned him off Metallica for a, a good decade, you know, and he, he had been such, such a huge fan. And like, it's, it's hard to imagine what a big, what a big rift that album caused amongst fans and and you know Metallica were almost cult-like and and the devotion the fans have and had but that that was a huge huge thing for them to swallow at the time yeah well I mean I think it's it's uh like you said you're listening to it again this week it's a tough listen it's just it's a it's an assault of noise it's cacophonous I mean there it's not without merit entirely but it's just, it's a very long, dense, dank album of sort of swampy and sludgy riffs. Not much in the way of um, sonic invention. Not much in the way of dynamic. I mean, it has that kind of brick wall. Uh, yeah, not many hooks. And I think if yeah. it had been maybe half the length, it's over an hour long, which oh my God, is incredible so to me. And Metallica were guilty of that in general in the 90s i mean loads of bands were they just looked at this this thing called the cd and thought you know all the bands that were kind of reared on the limitations of vinyl you know if you you kind of had to keep it to 40 minutes if you wanted it to sound good like 20 20 to 22 minutes per side because the the longer the song the thinner the grooves in the record so that then the piece of vinyl itself wouldn't sound as good but like I think a lot of bands from that eighties, let's say seventies, eighties era, just thought, oh wow, I can get like you know in and around seventy to eighty minutes of music onto a CD. So I, if if I have that, I might as well fill it up. Metallica did that with both Load and Reload. They're both way too long, and this is way too long. Like and even, you said like not like uh, low on hooks or whatever. Even some of the hooks that are there. So let's say the song "Some Kind of Monster" uh, has a pretty good riff. Like. It's not exactly a genius riff or whatever, but it's just like it's kind of an undeniable head-banging riff. Um, and the song just goes on for eight minutes. Like I was listening to it, I think yesterday, and there was a kind of a a, a pause in the riff. You know, it kind of died down a little bit, and I thought, ah, I have been satiated. And then it started up again. And I looked at my phone. And it was like, oh Jesus, there's another four minutes. You know, like I had totally gotten my fill and then it just kept going but without anything else to, to add, you know? Well, as, as more of a punk fan than metal always, I've always felt about Metallica that they, they did that. For, like for me, their songs have always been too long and I would have always loved to have taken an editing scissors to them because I always felt like there's an awesome verse here, there's an awesome chorus, there's an awesome riff and like a three and a half minute version of it would suit me fine and instead they're like seven minutes and I just didn't need that because it's repetitious. It's just the same. And, and well, I, I actually think that the, the, the golden age of Metallica, the, even with the long songs, they were more proggy than anything else. Well, certainly so, compared to St. Tanger, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but like songs on Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets and Injustice for All, especially Injustice for All, it's very, very progressive. There's lots of new riffs, lots of changing of time signatures and tempos and it's actually not that repetitive. I mean, it's repetitive in the sense that it's just, you know, kind of chug-chug guitars. And, if you know, variation within that formula doesn't do it for you. Well, you know, you have to listen to a different type of music. But this, I feel like there is no real, there's, there's nothing appro- approximating Prague. There's not, not nothing, like there isn't that level of ambition there. It's supposed to be more of a raw and emotional kind of thing rather than a more calculated, 
but it just doesn't do it. And the big problem for me is that you see in the some um, some kind of monster documentary that they're they keep saying like, let's just get into the room and jam, you know, let's just bang it out. But then you also see that you have Bob Rock, the producer, and I guess some uh, unnamed engineer who's wearing a cowboy hat most of the time. They're chopping it up on Pro Tools, and I think think what they did was they would do jams and jams and jams and then try and cultivate some type of song or you know at least song structure out of it and then sang over the top of it so it's like kind of one of these you know let's all just bang it out and then we'll put some structure on it afterwards but it's like once you do that it's no longer the let's just get together and jam it out so it's kind of like it ends up being neither fish nor fowl and i kind of ended up thinking of this as kind of like a digital frankenstein and i know that a lot of albums are recorded this way and they were a long time before this just pro tools made it easier i suppose it kind of reminded me of what i've read about like the hit makers how they do this they write individual hooks individual lines individual choruses and then they chop and change them on pro tools and they they absolutely frankenstein them you know and there's they're very good at this and they they make very catchy songs pretty much using like a type of theory like a psychological it's part music theory but it's part psychology as well and then they ship them they farm them out to different artists pop artists and yeah this was a little closer to that i guess it felt like there's a bit there's a bit where bob bob rock is on the laptop or not the laptop on the desktop looking at the the file and you can see you know the i don't know the wavelength or whatever of the music and lars is like literally pointing to one bass drum you know on this and then because he's Lars he says what really gets my dick hard is starting on boom boom (laughs) all right shall we do a quick um quick outline of like for people who only have a passing familiarity um like what what was the deal with Saint Anger what stage are Metallica at in their career what's going on with them personally at this point why why was this a turning point and why is this um documentary why is it chronicling like such a, a kind of a bizarre and interesting time for them? So St. Anger is released in June of 2003. Uh, it's their eighth studio album, and it's the the first one without Jason Newstead, who was on the, their bass player, who replaced the original bass player, Cliff Burton, who had died in 1986 or seven. I'm not sure. And so Jason Newstead leaves the band primarily due to... Um, a kind of a, I suppose, like the ultimate cause um, would be the uh, an argument with James Hetfield over whether or not he could pursue other musical endeavors outside of the band. And James Hetfield kind of seems seems to have given him a uh, an ultimatum: either leave the band uh, to do your uh, or do your side projects and leave the band, or stay in the band and give up on your side projects. And this seems uh, this seems to have caused a bit of a problem, and the a lot of it seems to that comes up in the um, documentary is that they never kind of got over the death of Cliff Burton, the original bassist and uh, Jason Newstead never really fit in. And they took out a lot of their uh, problems in terms of uh, grappling with and coming to terms with Cliff Burton's death on Jason Newstead. Um, It seems as though uh, Kirk Hammett, the lead guitar player was able to go along to get along by just, I guess, smoking a lot of weed and taking solace in his kind of guaranteed um, showcase of guitar solos per album. And James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich would be kind of sometimes very close and close collaborators. And then other times they'd be, they would be the big power forces that would clash. 
when this album came out, Metallica hadn't released uh, um, a sort of a studio album since 1997. Um, and in the 90s, Metallica had had a kind of a, a pretty interesting spot in the music world because although they had big financial success with the load and reload albums they're they changed their look they cut their hair they wore some makeup they kind of they kind of got into that postmodern pastiche um in that was very de rigueur for the grunge post grunge alternative rock scene of the mid 90s um and that caused big problems with the metal fans and the hardcore metal fans many of whom had already soured in the band because the Black Album from 1990 was such a gigantic hit and had a, a more streamlined kind of production and songwriting uh, as opposed to the kind of the more proggy and more uh, thrash metal stuff that they'd released in the 80s. So St. Anger was definitely a gigantic deal. Um, the, the world at large, especially music fans, were you know very much into the idea of a new Metallica album. They were hungry for it. Um, but James Hetfield, the singer, uh, basically realized that he had big problems with alcohol and other addictions during the making of the album and disappeared for, I think, 11 months or, or 12 months even during the making of it. And it was a very troubled album in its birth. Um, they didn't get a bass player while they were making it. Bob Rock, the producer, he had done their previous three albums uh, with them. He sat in on bass. Um, not really not really much bass playing on this uh, in the sense of anything dynamic. He just plays along with the guitars. When the album was released, it was basically universally panned, but it did sell reasonably well. And they kind of just went out on tour and did very, very well on tour, but quickly like dropped almost all songs from the album uh, from the set list and never really, never really acknowledged it as part of their corpus as you know, shortly thereafter. So we saw them on tour during this time in about what 2005 or something maybe uh, no it was august 20th 2003 wow at the rds arena uh in dublin so uh, we had the darkness in lincoln park as that's right acts, and the only tracks that they played from saint anger were frantic, frantic and saint anger? Uh, saint anger itself that i remember that distinctly and i but I mean, even then, I remember thinking, you know, for heritage acts, and by that stage, they they absolutely were. They get locked into this sort of thing where they they they're kind of trapped, and and people exp when they have such a back catalogue of of hits, you know, or you know, classic songs, there it's expected that they only play one or two off the new album, and it's almost like they don't have a choice. But yeah, I mean, this album was uniquely derided. I think the interesting thing about Metallica was that. Around this time, they started to go back, or certainly a, a little bit after this, maybe not quite the tour that they did in support of St. Anger, but the next tour after that, for sure, they were really mining their early thrash metal material, and they, there was a kind of renewed uh, you know, emphasis on that. At this time, I think they weren't fully comfortable with the idea of themselves as a heritage act, and I'm sure none of them would ever admit that that's what they are now. Um <laughs> But like St. Anger is is, a, is an attempt to, to be radically modern. Yeah. And actually, Gosh, weirdly, the only person in the film who really puts his finger on that fact is Kirk Hammett, who is who's completely, they walk all over him the whole way through. He's clearly the, the sm not the biggest ego in the band and, and has found his peace just by keeping his mouth shut quite often. And he, do you notice at one point they're arguing about not having any guitar solos on the, on the album because they're, they're, concerned that it will make the album sound dated because at that point in time 2003 
you know you've got new metal going on and stuff and 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 obviously the whole 80s rock seemed old-fashioned and kirk hammett says well if we try and be like what's happening right now and we don't put guitar solos on just because we're trying to sound like now that's what's going to date this album and i think he's been entirely vindicated by history yeah what's interesting about that little argument that they have in the in the documentary is that a lot of these kind of like a lot of the arguments that they have they their the their performance coach who we'll talk about in a minute maybe he's he's in there and so he kind of shapes the way in which they talk to each other because you know i think once you spend time with someone of that kind of ilk you end up aping their language and the way in which they get across their information and bob rock the producer is in there too so like again we can talk about him kind of separately i think he's way way too close to the band i mean he's performing on the album he's producing the album he's a trusted confidant for years oh like over a decade at this point but he's also inside in the therapy sessions with a lot of them which i think is probably not helpful either so they're arguing about the guitar solos and lars is making the point like oh guitar solos are done and Kirk is kind of, you know, maybe not as innocent as we might think, because no. he says, he says, um, oh, I'm not interested in doing traditional guitar solos anymore, which is just like, <laughs> for, like that's just a bad idea in and of itself. Plus, but if, Kirk, there were, if there were to be someone who could excel in the non-traditional guitar solo realm, it's not going to be Kirk Hammett. But here is but, Kirk about to have, like, the only thing that they really let him do taken away from him. Yeah, I mean, I've heard lots of stories, and I don't know how true this is, but, like, I've heard people tell me, and I also read it in a book before, that like on the you know the kind of gold standard Metallica albums, Kirk didn't even play any rhythm guitar. Like that's all James. Um, but anyway, in this particular argument, Bob Rock says, "I don't think there should be any rule that we have guitar solos, and I don't think there should be any rule that we don't have any guitar solos. We should." you know, do what the do what the song needs. And Kirk says, you know, that makes sense to me. I'm happy with that. I want to play for the song. And so if we left it at that, I would say, you know, good call. You know, that's that's a that's an intelligent way of describing how, you know, good musicians approach mus- making music in a kind of a quote unquote musical way rather than in a kind of a, a prescribed way in accordance with some sort of like set of ideological principles or something. But in the end when you listen to the album, like it I, I, you can't help but feel as though the lack of guitar solos or even lead guitar for the most part is something that's been you know demarcated as oh this will make us sound old hat well one thing that they don't directly address in the film and i think i think it's because the film itself doesn't oddly it's more interested in the personalities and the problems the personal problems they're going through it's not really a film about like the the musicality of the album or what decisions they were making musically, I I felt, which is which is why when you said on the on our Slipknot episode recently we ended up talking about um, Saint Anger briefly and you said well clearly one of the problems musically there is they were trying to be like what was going on around them at that time which was largely new metal. Nobody mentions that at all during the show or during the the documentary. Again, I I I, I just think the filmmakers are not overly interested in in chronicling a lot of conversations about musical direction it's just not the point of the of the film but yeah. that, clearly that was going like decisions must have been made to make it sound more contemporary you know but not having guitar solos uh, having these short choppy swampy riffs um and and the, yeah so wikipedia describes the album as influenced by alternative metal 
which it says is a fusion genre infusing heavy metal with influences from alternative rock and other genres not normally associated with metal. Alternative metal bands are often characterized by heavily down-tuned, mid-paced guitar riffs, a mixture of accessible melodic vocals and harsh vocals, and sometimes unconventional sounds within other heavy metal styles. So that sounds like a fair, you know, kind of uh, characterization of what the album is. But, I mean, to me, it's whether they're trying to or whether they ended up making new metal or not, it's very clear that that's what they're responding to. Like, I yeah. mean, a lot of the guitars to me sound like they're, they're on a Korn album. Yeah. That's like that. That's my big beef with the with the album. I think above all else, is it just just doesn't sound very good. I mean, the songs aren't great. They're not awful. They're not great. It just doesn't. It's not an enjoyable album to listen to. Um, obviously, we all know that the drum sound is hor- horrific. The open kind of or semi-open <laughs> snare with the big dirty clangs. I mean, that's been kind of complained about to death amongst the kind of Metallica and even just music community. But I. I think actually like the snare drum gets a lot of criticism but the rest of the drum kit sounds like ass too and i was reading this book i, I don't actually recommend the book i don't like it very much but it's called enter night it's a biography of metallica by the british journalist mick wall he's kind of one of these like journalists who's been around forever and he can't help but write books that just say like oh when i interviewed them in 1988 and speaking to kirk on the side of the road in 1991 you know it's, it's as much about him writing reviews for nme as it is about them but he, he says that um, Bob Rock told him that they wanted a kind of, um, they wanted everything to be fairly laissez-faire in how it was recorded and that they only took 15 minutes to set up the mics for the drums and they didn't really care if it sounded too clean. Which is really funny because like Bob Rock is known to be one of these kind of perfectionist um, producers that would like make bands record things millions of times and would work for a really long time to get these like gigantic stadium filling sounds i think that's one of the reasons people don't like the black album like if you're going to take the kind of purest stances that the black album sounds too good you know that it's it's it can't be metal if it's that kind of pristine or whatever but like and again that's why i actually like bob rock's production if you listen to the bob rock albums that he produced for the cult and motley crew like he did dr feelgood for motley crew She's like one of the best sounding albums ever. If you put on the song Dr. Feelgood, turn it up loud, like there's like probably, no joke, 40 guitars playing the riff all together. And the drums are gigantic. They sound like like he's just, I don't know, playing in space, <laughs> rattling the, the earth with sounds. It's fantastic. And this, to me, just sounds like the drums sound like everybody knows they sound like pots and pans. And they sound totally disconnected from the guitars, which don't have that kind of clean, precise attack that you normally associate with with the Metallica guitar sound. I mean, not to get too technical about it, but like, I think they're just using the wrong types of guitars. You see them in the documentary, they're kind of playing vintage Les Pauls and stuff instead of the more the ESP guitars with the active EMG pickups that have that more precise attack and it just and then they're they're doing everything down tuned like some of the songs are down tuned to C or B. It's just not very metallica y and you know you see them playing the, the songs in the in the movie and these the strings are rattling around on the guitar neck as they're so loose from being down tuned and it just sounds like ass and that's not what you come to Bob Rock for, you know? You come to Bob <laughs> Rock for the the big kind of I don't know, pristine rock production. It just sounds terrible. I found him difficult to judge because even though it's clear that in reality he's a big player in all of this, I feel like the film downplays him. 
it does he's always there but he doesn't say much and the film is far more interested in like James and Lars and their relationship with this therapist guy and Bob Rock's or Bob Rock says very little and it's not until quite late in the film when he he has a basically has quite a nasty moment where he he has a go at Jason Newstead and nixes any possibility of him coming back which in which I found quite mean-spirited and apart from that though it's not it's not clear to me as as someone without that knowledge you know how important he obviously is in this whole situation well like so i think you're right and look documentaries aren't cinema verite you know like they're they're showing you what they want to show to tell you the story that they want to tell uh, but to me like the the big tell is that he's even if he's not uh, highlighted he's in every scene he's always always there and you're right i i picked up on that conversation where I think Lars says to the other two, apparently Jason wants to rejoin the band. And it is Bob Rock who says the definitive. He says, like, in my mind, the heart and soul of Metallica is you three and always has been since Cliff died. And it's, you, I, I, don't, I don't think... But he's dismissing, me. like, 15 years of history and bringing it yeah. back. They always bring it back to Cliff, you know? And yeah. it's like, I just find, I, I, I just got a feeling that he was being a bit manipulative because, well, this guy's out of the picture. So I'm playing the bass. I'm here every day. I have more control now. And if, if this yeah. guy was to come back, that would just loosen me up a little bit. Yeah, but to me, they should have never allowed Bob Rock to play bass on the album. He was too close. He, he wasn't able to have the, the adequate perspective to operate as a producer, I think. They should have just hired either one or several anonymous, you know, studio goons who would come in and play, and they didn't, like, you barely have to even talk to them, you know? You just mutter a few th- things, and they do it because they do what you want, because that's their, their thing, you well, know? This, this whole album is a an identity crisis, and the guys are insecure out of their mind the whole way through. It's really cringy and difficult to watch sometimes oh and it's a very painful watch like you said like, the I, I, the guy I was, the, think, I was thinking i was thinking to myself do, would i prefer to continue in this bloody coronavirus <laughs> lockdown or be in one of those <laughs> therapy sessions with metallica is uh, and your man the therapist guy has them all using this horrible like cagey language and oh it's really difficult and i i feel like you're when you say this i hear that and they're not those kind of guys they just want to have at each other and that's clearly the relationship between james and lars is clearly that they fight and then they they love each other really and they make up and yeah there's they, a, there's there at the towards the very end when he's talking about moving his family and selling his house to kind of <laughs> settle in with them and to even go on tour with them there is a great moment where james is kind of telling him you know i think we might have hit the end of the road in terms of our relationship here and instead of saying okay fair enough you know, because at this point, they're like giving us the the days that they've been working on this album. Oh, and the, yeah. the, the, the performance coach is there since day one. And they're like day 500 and something, something. And they, they mention, Lars says it, I think, that they're paying him 40 grand a month. Yeah, 40 grand a month. Yeah. And his and, face when he realizes that they're like very politely trying to get rid of him and he's wriggling but, on the hook. Oh. But he, he, he immediately starts talking to James about trust issues and how he's been swimming upstream to try yeah. to get James to trust him. And instead of, like at this point now, I think they've actually they've grown a lot and they're less insecure and they're they're a bit, you know, kind of standing on their own two feet. Lars says to him, how's about when the client says enough, <laughs> you go away? 
<laughs> so to, it's, a, it's an awesome moment because yeah. we've had enough of him. Yeah. And there's there's a few like bits where they're in the studio. I think there's one moment in particular where they're listening to a playback of one of the tracks, and he's just in the corner like trying to rock out to it. <laughs> and it's 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 not even that he doesn't listen to heavy music. It's like he doesn't listen to music. He's just the most dry slice of toast. But so why, he, his job is he goes they they ship him around to like major league baseball teams and stuff who are having a hard time getting along and basically high stake situations where like vast amounts of money are at stake because you know creative people or sporting people can't get along and he gets brought in to make sure the money keeps flowing and I I think that's why he ignores Kirk Hammett even when he clearly has problems because <laughs> there's, there's a really horrible bit where you know James and James and Lars are talking to each other using this really fraught weighted kind of BS uh, therapy speak and James is like I just feel like you don't listen to me or something and then Kirk Hammett just says like almost to himself that's what it's like for me for 15 years and they all ignore him including the therapist and it's just like the therapist is like yeah you're you, you've got problems but your problems aren't holding up the money so I don't care about you that's yeah, what I felt there, there's a good bit as well where a, a very similar scene where James and Lars are talking to each other and he's, you know, conducting the orchestra bullshit and Kirk just says, like, don't we have better things to do with our time? <laughs> it's awesome. So who is this guy? So he calls himself Dr. Phil Toll, but he's not a doctor. He only has an MA. So that's very important. So he's a fraud. Not unlike another Dr. Phil who doesn't have uh, a PhD. So his website says that his principal... Um, uh, kind of function is to mentor human excellence. Uh, he calls himself a performance enhancement coach and he devotes boundless energy and expertise to those whose passion is to achieve, sustain and elevate their excellence. Um, this is all from his website here. Um, he says, uh, quote, you have your own truth and your own answers. It's my role to help you retrieve them, then facilitate your best being and doing. Most of us are more afraid of the consequences of succeeding than failing, and thus sub subconsciously steer clear of our res responsibility to excellence, uh, exclamation mark. That's it. Like and he, has ten he has a bunch of testimonials from his uh, on his website. Um, the director, or co-director, I should say, of Some Kind of Monster says... Without a doubt, Phil is the man who saved Metallica. Oh, jeez. Um, and both Lars and Kirk give him credit. Uh, Kirk Hammett says, if Lennon and McCartney had Phil, the Beatles would have never broken up. And interestingly, it seems as though he kind of, he did, does a lot of work or, and did a lot of work in the, the corporate world. But yeah, you're right. He came to big time prominence by working with sports teams. But Metallica heard of him through Tom Morello, who is uh, from Rage Against the Machine. And so he worked with him, which is, I mean, that's a that's a, a tough pill to swallow for me. Like, because Rage are usually seen as a band that are, you know, beyond reproach and all that. And well, I mean, you know, like, look, I'm I'm not saying therapy is a bullshit thing. It's a real thing, and, no, and saying, people I, benefit I from I, it. But this guy, this, this guy, this guy is a therapy. Yeah, this guy is a is a charlatan. Like, you think? I think they they. What's funny is because reading these testimonials you've got kirk and lars uh lars says because of phil we have the best relationship we've ever had and the director saying that he saved metallica but the movie throws him under the bus 100 well, yeah well it, it makes me think more of who was that that hanger on john lennon had who magic alex he sounds more like him <laughs> oh god yeah he's he built a 
a studio for, for the Beatles that cost them, I don't know, untold money and uh, none of it worked. 40 grand a month, perhaps? <laughs> yeah. So I, I found it upsetting for some reason. I kind of, I mean, maybe just because I saw this documentary when it came out. And so I've long associated Metallica with this kind of rubbish. But I thought that Tom Morello was, you know, you know, they kind of put themselves forward as like, you know, working class almost somehow. And I don't know. Well, that's one thing I want to mention, which is that when talking about the, the personalities of the lads in the film, like particularly Lars and James, um, I I was surprised because I'd always hated Lars and I always thought he was a dick face and he, he, he is in some ways. But like, I didn't hate him in this film as much as I did when I was younger. And yeah, yeah, you know what's funny is that James comes across worse. Now he's James has massive problems during this time, and I don't want to, I don't want to minimize that. But he's way more annoying in the arguments. And Lars, Lars is is a dick face in terms of he's your average super crazy rich guy, completely detached from reality, and he says stupid things and like he drinks champagne while selling off his paintings of for like millions of dollars. So. You know, he's not living on, on planet Earth. But in terms of this film, in terms of Metallica and making this album, does he care about Metallica? Hell yeah. Does he care about the album? Yes. Does he care about, you know, his friendship with James? He does. He absolutely does. And, you know, he's not he's not lazy. He's not cynical about the album or about the music. Yeah. And you know what? Like, he, he talks about how when him and James were 14 or 15 or whatever it was when they met, they'd hang out in his bedroom and listen to New Wave of British Heavy Metal and they were they would bond like brothers and they loved music together. And then when anyone else would show up, James would kind of front up with some macho stuff. And he talks about how Dave Mustaine was always kind of like in that macho realm with James. And you just see that like Lars is kind of a, a small, weedy, almost feminine, kind of self-consciously intellectual guy. And that James is with... James Hetfield is more of this kind of like, you know, macho, weightlifting, vintage cars. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the tattoos and, and that kind of stuff. And that like, whenever he gets a chance to kind of do the, the stuff, Lars is left by the wayside. And yet they're bonded for life yeah. as business partners and mu- music, musical partners. And I just, and you, I, kind of, you kind of end up thinking like, oh, you know what? Like if, if I'm going to pick a side in that, I mean, it sounds like you're the aggrieved party and that James just wanted to be uh, popular and, 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 you know, but like socially, whereas you're kind of like an awkward character that, you, you know, someone's you know, being associated with you is, is, is a bit of a dose. But it's like, that's what being a true friend is about, is that even if your friend is a bit of a lump, you own them socially, you own them publicly. Yeah. And like, and not that he hasn't, because obviously they've been in the band together. Compare them with like some other very rich kind of head up their own ass characters we've dealt with before. Like compare Lars to like Paul Stanley or something. Like Lars has a certain level of bullshit when he's talking about his paintings and his, and and that. But like I I feel like his level of bullshit is pretty shallow. Like, you know he's he spends loads of time in the studio. He deeply cares about the album. He gets very upset when he thinks Metallica might fall apart because. Like James has James is AWOL for months and he doesn't really know what's happening to him. He doesn't know if he's going to come back. And, you know, okay, he's still going to be rich. He's still fine. But he's he's kind of real in, on some level. Yeah, but he's, he is, but he's still a dose. Like, I, I couldn't <laughs> help but, but still compile a list of, like, him doing awful stuff throughout the documentary. And, like, and his drumming is annoying. You know, like, he's... He's in, an intractable part of what makes Metallica Metallica, and therefore, like, there is no Metallica without Lars Ulrich, you know. But 
he sucks. Like, I mean, there's just there's bits of him hanging out in the studio in his shorts, and and then he's and his dad, Torben. Oh, his dad is hilarious. You know, he he plays the he he plays the um uh, this moody atmospheric instrumental track for his dad, and he says, "Oh, we played it for our manager," and he says that we should open the album with it, and then there's like a long pause, and his dad just goes. If I was to give you my opinion on this, I would say delete it. <laughs> and Lars is so crushed. Yeah, but like, there's there's a bit where he's hanging out, listening to playbacks in his dressing gown, and he's just like, "Ah, oh, you suck." And then there's another bit where he they're having one of those awful fucking therapy sessions over their lunch, and uh, Lars says, "I went for a run this morning, and the only word that kept coming back to me was fuck, fuck." <laughs> And then he has an argument with James where I again I what he says I actually agree with and I think he's right. And then he just says fuck about five times and gets right into James Hetfield's face and says fuck. <laughs> and then there's a bit later on where Bob Rock has Lars say fuck into a microphone yeah, and along he... with the music and he curls up into a ball. <laughs> he rolls over. <laughs> just like a terrible lump. Do you know what I think one of the big problems of the album actually is that the lyrics are atrocious because oh, they wrote yeah, them by yeah. they wrote 100%. them by him wrote them by committee yeah. which is I think a bad w- way to write lyrics in general and then in fact when they first when they first moved the lyric my lifestyle determines my death style you can they all they're laughing at it that's like Lars is chortling at how shit it is and that's what they went with there's a really funny bit I don't know if you picked up on this where you can see Bob Rock is like alright guys get into your lyric writing circle and Lars is just like he's got a big dirty puss on his face he's, he's not in the mood for this <laughs> And so then after they they listen to the song while they're writing lyrics, and it's basically this, they're kind of just coming up with like full badass slogans. Yeah. And that's what the, that's what all the lyrics are. They're like they they don't really co- cohere together. Yeah. It's just like these little snippets of thoughts of some of a fourteen year old who's trying to make themselves sound badass. And so there's, after the song ends, Bob Rock says. Uh, you know, okay, guys, let's see what you got. <laughs> and he gets the sheets from Kirk and James, and you just see Lars Ulrich has drawn this kind of absolutely terrible stick figure oh, robot. Yeah. yeah. Did you notice? And also, I hate his. He's wearing this fisherman hat the whole time. It just makes him look like a complete moron. Like neighbor Wilson hat. Yeah. Yes, well played. Did you notice uh, the the list of rejected album titles on the whiteboard? Uh. Oh yeah, you know what? I thought about writing some of those down, but uh, they were all terrible. Oh, I've got them here. I've got them here. One of them was "Best Dressed Chicken in Town." Oh no! <laughs> one of them was "Floods of Vomit," <laughs> and one of them was "Satanic Cuckoo Clock." <laughs> I don't hate that actually. Oh, I do. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, when they come up with Saint Anger, James is like, "Yeah, yeah." I mean, this this album is about anger. And that that's that's all they got really. Like that's that's what it means. <laughs> Think about metal for me, especially the kind of metal that Metallica does when it's you know kind of on form, is that it's not it's not about anger. It's actually about precision and technicality. And you know most of the metalheads that I know, especially the ones who play metal music, are finicky, detail oriented, kind of technically minded people. But and most so of I the moshers listening to new metal circa 2003 were all about the feels, weren't they? That's the yeah. New metal is about the feels, for <laughs> sure. And that's that's what they were channeling, whether they it was intentional or not. Well, it's like you know they're trying to do that kind of groove metal thing that was you know a little bit on vogue at the time. But like Lars can't groove. 
it's not his thing. And again, like Laz is technically a bad drummer, but he plays with a lot of personality. His personality comes through. Uh, so, you know, fair enough. Like, I'm, I'm not saying I want to hear Metallica play with anyone other than Lars Ulrich. What did you think about the bit where they're being asked to record that stupid radio jingle and they all hate it and they don't want to do it and then they have this horrible phone call with, I don't know, their record company or something and he's it's saying... manager, Cliff Bernstein. Yeah, you have to do this. This company controls, like, radio play for, like, hundreds of channels and you just get a glimpse into, like, how hellish and corporate that whole thing is. Like, you have to play ball with these companies or you don't get played. And I, I, had, I had a hard time swallowing that. It's just like, I, it, it, if that's the moment where, you know, Metallica realized that there was a transactional nature. And no, that no, I mean, they would have. It's like, what the hell? Come on. Like, unless their management just shielded them from it and did all of that in the shadows. Or maybe, um, I don't know, maybe they just put up with it for years because they didn't mind and they didn't care. And now they're like, well, this one time we don't want to do it. Well, Lars says, oh, we, this is, you know, we earned 20 years of integrity and it's all going to collapse in a minute. I was like, I'm not sure that's how it works. I'm not sure they've, like, is he saying they've never recorded a shitty radio jingle? Like, I bet they have. I, I, would, I would assume <laughs> they did something. I mean, uh, there's no way that you end up the size of Metallica doing those gigantic tours, you know, over, all around the world for years at a time without a ton of corporate well, like, and all the rest of it. so they have a problem with this record company but they don't have a problem with like you know Ticketmaster or well this was maybe it's just because since I guess 2002 or 3 whenever that was filmed like the music industry has become infinitely more corporate probably than it was then that we just you know I, I had a hard time watching it thinking like oh come on lads wake up who gives a shit about this kind of stuff maybe it's just because they were still you know at that time, thinking of things as a you know a kind of rock and roll or whatever. But to me, again, it's like if you have a forty thousand dollar performance coach, <laughs> who gives a shit about singing a radio jingle? Like even if it does suck. Well, I mean, maybe I mean I still think that you 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 buy into that sort of culture when you're at a high enough level of being a celebrity. You probably still feel like at least it's your decision, and they probably just didn't want it. They felt like this thing was being forced upon them. And they was just, it their decision to have crazy cabby? In the studio? Did you see that? No, who's that? He's this, like, radio personality. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. He looks like fucking Guy Fieri. Yeah, he does, yeah. He's in there listening, and it comes up at the bottom of the screen, crazy cabby, and I was like, ah, oh, lump. And then he's he's talking to Lars, because Lars, that's the bit where Lars says, oh, the boom, boom makes my dick hard. So they're, <laughs> they're chopping up all of these, like, endless riffathons um, into songs, and crazy cabby is like what's actually going on here you know and <laughs> Bob Rock and Lars expl- explain it Lars does a terrible job explaining he starts talking about funneling riffs and all this and then your man says oh uh, so you're kind of like Jackson Pollock yeah and then Bob, Bob Rock in a terrible moment says he's Pollock the funnel arranger guy <laughs> yeah and again I'm just watching this going ah Bob Rock you're better than this do you know what was another funny moment as well was uh, they bring their manager Cliff Bernstein in to listen to all the songs and you could see like they play him the first one and he's grooving and he's got a big smile on his face and then they kind of do a uh, <laughs> time lapse <laughs> and as the songs go on you can see he's suffering and he starts checking his watch and then he's just like looking at the stuff that they have around the, on the walls or in the studio. Or when they ask all the journalists to come in to hear it for the first time. Yeah, that's good too. 
Yeah. It's like that's what that's that's what listening to the album is. It's just like, oh God, stop doing this to me. Even like, in, and here's the thing. I don't like. I said I don't like the sound of the guitars at all, and a lot of the riffs are to me like not what Metallica are good at. But I mean, James Hetfield has the greatest right hand in in musical history. So it's like as long as he's doing the chugging, it's going to be incredible. Uh, even if the sound isn't as good as it could be. So I, I will say that for the album, even though it was kind of an assault on my head. Um, <laughs> the, the chugging is still James Hetfield, so it can't be that bad. I, was, I don't want to say it's good, but it's not that bad. I think I probably enjoyed it more than you, but I didn't, I didn't consume it all in one go. That would have been too much. You know what's funny is I was able to listen to the album all in one go, and I even listened to it twice back to back, I couldn't watch the documentary in one sitting. I had to take a take a break. Oh, it's it's over. Right. Is it two two hours and twenty? It's very long. Yeah, so I watched an hour, then I watched maybe forty minutes, and then I polished it off. So like, it actually took me three goes because I was just. I mean, for one, I was taking notes, so I mean, there's that. But I was just getting assaulted by the, <laughs> just by the cringe, and and like you say, I I mean maybe I'm overly cynical, but I do find the kind of the language that the therapist encourages them to 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 start talking with is just painful and like i i the bit that like that i loved was when they start to turn on him yeah you see the bit like and again lars is kind of the hero at that he shows up to <laughs> and he's about to walk up to his drum kit and mcgee has put up a piece of paper that says the zone ad- admission is believing and then yeah. lars just says i guess i'm not drumming today <laughs> and he walks away saying i'm gonna make some phone calls he's like you know what if i i cannot endorse this yeah and bob, then, bob rock hates him as well doesn't he bob rock who i also complained about a minute ago in fairness to give him his juice he kind of points to a sign that's above his head that says the zone he's like you know he says like my life isn't great right now and i don't need this to make it worse and points to the sign but you can also see that someone i'd say it was probably large lars has it doesn't say the zone actually it says zone it which is horrendous. I mean, it's just complete nonsense. Once you start turning nouns into verbs, you, you're off the deep end. But it's it's been changed from zone it to bone it. <laughs> Do we want to talk about the Napster stuff? Because that is briefly mentioned, and obviously it was a big deal about that time. Yeah, it was a big deal. And uh, what's fun is they show the videos that were doing the rounds on the internet at the time. Yeah, Lars they're... Ulrich is this kind of goblin or gremlin. <laughs> and James Hetfield is this big gargoyle. Yeah. Uh, I, I did, in fact, download Metallica songs on Napster. That happened. <laughs> I had a, a, a file on the computer that said, welcome underscore to underscore <laughs> sanitarium. <laughs> That was the thing about Napster. You never knew really what you were getting. Like, just because a file was called something, it, had, it was named a song, didn't mean that was what you were getting. I thought for years that the uh, the song Refugee by Tom Petty was Leonard Skinner because that's what the <laughs> Napster file that I downloaded told me it was. <laughs> the thing about it is that most, most people um, don't care about principles like that. And, you know, we were there on that St. Anger tour and nobody gave a shit. I mean, maybe it's because we all started downloading things from LimeWire as soon as Napster went away. You know, we, we found our source and I mean, it's just one of those things where like, full full disclosure, I got the version of say uh, some kind of monster that we watched off pirate Bay. So (laughs) fuck you, Lars. 
it's just one of those things where like yeah it's stealing stuff i get it but hearing it from someone like lars Ulrich, just like I, maybe if, if the campaign had been led by some indie musician i don't know would have gone down differently but it just it just sounded so sanctimonious coming from him he was just so rich yeah and and you know what like in the at the end of the day he's correct uh in terms of the abstract principle and i mean music is less viable financially than ever before and a large part of that is because of the cheap if not free availability of music online um so again he i think i think he was on the right side of his history but he's just a shithead and hearing him talk about lost revenue will never go down well <laughs> in the in the flash cartoons he was always portrayed like sitting amongst bags of money yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, on a, on a other note just this is just kind of a uh, a uh, a random observation so james hetfield wears a lot of like i said kind of um 1930s inspired work work gear you know like um, um mechanic yeah. kind of work shirts and stuff and so on one of his work shirts he had a name you know the way you might see like a kind of a, a gas attendant or a mechanic in the 1930s yeah. or 40s or something did you see what his name was i did not it was papa het <laughs> <laughs> i love it so just just because I think James Hetfield is is generally considered to be a super cool dude and you know a badass and like Kirk Hammett is seen as I mean a lot of people who like to consider themselves quote unquote in the know with regards to music like to take a shit on uh, Kirk Hammett's guitar skills and that he's actually not that technical and the stuff he plays is you know kind of not particularly metal and that he overuses the wah pedal to hide his deficiencies and you know because if you do if you just kind of like pump your foot on a wah pedal or whatever you can kind of just scratch at the notes and it doesn't matter if they don't come out particularly cleanly it makes it sound like you're playing more than you are makes it sound like you're playing faster than you are and Kirk Hammett is like seen as the biggest wah pedal abuser more or less of all time um, so, like, Kirk Hammett's got that knock on him. Lars Ulrich's got all the knocks on him for being, like, you know, just just a wanker. You yeah, know, James Hetfield like is wanker. largely, like, well thought of, or has been, anyway, for many years yeah. by but the fans. I, of I found that he, he, he didn't come across great, actually, in this no. documentary. And, like, I, you so, and I were talking about this not that long ago, that he had did he had done a uh, um, an appearance on the Joe Rogan podcast where he kind of came out as a bit of a... <laughs> a pro-gun culture warrior, you know, saying that, like, he had to move out of San Francisco after living there for X amount of years because the liberals were too much. Which, so I think he's, he's very if, much into the, like, I want to go and shoot bears in the head because... God in fact, he does gun. that in the film. He shoots a bear when he, <laughs> and his Russian he holiday. He does. Which, that, yeah. yeah. I think if that's... If you're going to out yourself that way, Joe Rogan is obviously the place to do it. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. I, so at the end of the day, I come out liking Kirk Hammett the most. I mean, he's you see, like you don't see much of him in the documentary, mainly, but like you say, because the documentary filmmakers aren't that interested in him. But also just because it's not much for him to do. You know, he doesn't get to do any guitar solos. So no, you know, I'd like to say um, that I did not once but twice go to see an ex exhibition of 
horror movie memorabilia owned by Kirk Hammett and donated to uh, various museums uh, once in Salem, Mass. And once uh, last time I was in Toronto, Toronto with Matt and it's excellent. So it's obviously doing the tours of the various museums. If you are somewhere and it is happening, it is well worth a look. It's all like um, posters and costumes and props from 1950s alien invasion films, 1930s classic uh, universal horror movies and sort of everything in between. So well worth a look. I, I think Kirk Hammett is like a cool guy. I like that he likes old horror movies. He wears his influences on his sleeve, you know, like, and I, I have a, like a, a little tin box of the, some of his guitar picks and they all have like old monster movie pictures on them. And he has one that's kind of in the shape of a fang. It's good crack, you know, and like, I like that he has the guitars with the Bale and the Ghost and oh, the Ghost movies. <laughs> those are so tasteless. <laughs> well, to me, it, it's not a matter of like, I don't know. To me, they're perfectly in line with who he is. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah that, that's true. That's one of the things that, like, that got became, I think, kind of interesting about Metallica as they, you know, progressed throughout their careers. That the four, that's or let's say three, personalities emerged as very different people, but they didn't, like, they didn't try to create a coherent band image anymore. You know, like there was a time in the eighties, I think, where they probably told Kirk, like, you're not allowed to do this or that. You have to fit into this image that we have. And now over time, they all just kind of, you know, they're, they're different personalities. And I think probably having Robert Trujillo join the band as a kind of a, a very particular type of personality is very different from the rest of them. And he wears who he is very uh, kind of out there as well. I think that probably helped a bit. It's, a, um, it's obviously supposed to be like a sort of a, you know, closing an arc in the film. So it's obviously a little bit artificial, but it, it is a very nice moment when he comes in and they just they're just loosening up from how uptight they had been earlier and they're kind of having a bit of fun again once they start playing with him and i mean I jesus mean, you know, did you not find maybe you didn't pay that much attention but so they show the auditions for all the different bass players and uh they're like they're doing uh for whom the bell tolls you know which has the kind of famous clipboard baseline at the start and all the rest of them are terrible at it like you couldn't possibly think of hiring them. They're all and they're all like long in the tooth professionals yeah, yeah, playing yeah. with the cult and Marilyn Manson and corrosion of conformity and uh, I think even nine inch nails maybe one of the other dudes. And like Robert Tadrio just like absolutely kills it. Yeah. And the rest of them are like not just less than him, but they're a bit shit. I couldn't believe the guy from the cult was playing the ref wrong and everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, sweet Jesus. Did they, you know did what? they like, not practice so... for this? Like, it's Metallica. Like, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and you know what? Like, they, they say, like, the story is always that they kind of hired Jason Newstead as quickly as they possibly could because they were told, like, get back on tour. And they, you know, and even he came in knowing all the songs. It's like, what are these clowns up to? Yeah, that's astonishing. And then, and oh, then yeah. Trujillo comes in and you can tell he's nervous. But he's kind of having a good time with it as well. It's a nice moment in the film. Yeah, and you know what? Like he's, I, I think as far as I know, he's the he's been in the band longer than Jason now. Yeah, I suppose he has. And he has his own little figure, and they kind of incorporated him kind of nicely. Um, even if the the album that they released after this, Death Magnetic, you can't really hear the bass on that very well either. <laughs> back so to they, back to Jason. He said. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, well, it's not like uh, Justice, for Justice for All, where there's no bass at all. But Have you heard And Justice for Bass on YouTube? <laughs> Somebody oh, has edited back in. <laughs> the amount of YouTube videos of people either playing along with the album on bass and 
you know, trying to like isolate whatever uh, frequency of Jason Newstead's original bass. So is is it is it accepted that that was like just some kind of crazy power move by the two guys? Like, um, can you can you believe they would sabotage like their own album to that extent just to do a move, do a number on the new guy? Like, is that really what happened? Has to be. Has to be. I mean, I can't. I know they're egomaniacs, but that's in, like. To the, I don't think to they the... did it. A... Yeah, maybe it's ego. I mean, obviously, the, I'm, if they were going to try to answer it, I'm sure they'd say we were at a time of mourning and we'd lost perspective or whatever. But it seems more callous and purposeful than that, rather than a kind of uh, an oversight caused by lack of perspective or something. Bit like Kiss sneaking back into the studio and deleting Peter Chris's drum, drum solo. Well, that's because they knew that his uh, threat to leave the band if the drum solo was edited out wasn't real. <laughs> what did you think about the bit where, like, Jason Newstead is playing with his new band and, uh, you know, in fairness, Lars goes in to see him and then has a bit of a meltdown at just, like, the fact that Jason is having, like, a little bit of modest success and he just can't handle it? It's very strange. That's a weird bit because the band that Jason Newstead is in there, Echo Brain, are... A total nothing burger. Like, there's nothing going on there. They're very fluff, uh, alt-rock stuff. And you see James or Jason Newstead headbanging on stage to this, like, not heavy music, which makes him look like an idiot. But then when when you see Lars and Kirk like and Bob Rock very upset that Metallica's collapsing, because that's when James Hetfield is yeah. uh, missing in action, you know, there's, there's a degree to which, like, all right, you have no perspective here because they're playing in a small club and... You know, Metallica doesn't even fart in a small club, let alone play one. Unless they want to, just for, you know, for the sake of... But I guess at that point, Hetfield is like AWOL. They don't know where, like, when he's coming back. Yeah. And Lars loses it. He's like, oh, we're the past, man. This is the future. And it's like, okay, they're playing in a slightly bigger club than you thought they would be. But, like, that's still a ridiculous statement. Also, the music isn't even very good. But I will say, uh, dick move by Jason Newstead to get the hell out of there before he could shake hands with Lars and Kirk, because they go backstage and they see the other two McGees from Echo Brain, but Jason Newstead has pieced out. Yeah. So that's a dick move from him. Yeah. But I, you definitely get the impression, you know, like they have an interview with him, and he says, uh, there's some days when I think, oh man, what have I given up? And then I remember what it was like to be in the band, and I think, oh, you did the right thing for yourself. And I'm sure it was horrible for him to be in, to be in that band uh, getting you know treated like crap by by James and Lars and but the in the Mick Wall book uh, he says that the the you know the reason Kirk could stay in the band is that like he knew his role and he stayed out of the way the rest of the time and he made sure that when James and Lars fought they fought with each other and he was <laughs> he was there and apparently like he just smoked a ton of weed and got super stoned and was very passive. And came in to do the guitar solos, and it was kind of well understood that that was his thing, and they wouldn't bother him, and he didn't bother them. Same thing. Looks stupid with a cowboy hat on his ranch, though. He does. Yeah, he's a bit out of place there. there. I, I, it's almost like he's like, "What do I do now? I'm rich. Oh, I guess I buy a ranch." Rather than poor, I've always poor guy to... is absolutely clinging to those hair follicles as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. say he's paid for some expensive treatment <laughs> to keep. Uh, keep something going there the only the only thing we haven't mentioned that i wanted to talk about briefly was the uh the dave mustaine scene oh god <laughs> that's that's difficult it's kind of 
it's like uh, James Hetfield is gone, so they don't know what to do. And uh, fucking Dr. Phil is trying to keep his 40 grand going. So he's like, <laughs> Lars, let's dig up anything that could possibly, you know, be uh, a skeleton in your closet. So part of that involves David Stain. And David Stain comes across as a total wanker as well. <laughs> right? they, like, they put it up on the screen that he sold 17 million albums with Megadeth. And yet he's tortured every day by the fact that they kicked him out of Metallica because he could have been bigger. It's like, well, 17 million albums is pretty good, Dave. Plus, <laughs> you sang and wrote all the songs in Megadeth and you're the main McGee, you know? You're not competing with anyone else. You're not just any guitar player. You're the, the driving force. <laughs> I mean, and the bit where he's like, I miss my old Danish buddy. Uh, and we said we'd smoke hash out of the ground. It's like, that's just two adolescents behaving like idiots. It's not something to wistfully, you know, hope for a return to. Ah, but he's 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 like he's clawing up he's trying whatever he has, whatever purchase he might have on Lars to try and tug on the heartstrings. Yeah. That's Maybe that's he's all he's got. A, he's angling for a, for a comeback to Metallica like a total lump. <laughs> he's a right wing nut job these days as well. He's all like a Christian Republican kind of stuff. Yeah. Some sort of a horrible inevitability to that, isn't it, as these guys get older? Yeah. Again, like I said, metal isn't about kind of unbridled aggression and no. all that. It's a, it's a it's a rage for order, as Queen's Reich would say. <laughs> right. Anything else you'd like to add? I just ask you. So, if you were to pick your favorite song from the album, um, can you remember any of them except for Saint Anger and? Frantic? It wouldn't be Invisible Kid. Invisible Kid is by far the worst. <laughs> And it's the longest track on the album too. Nearly. Well, it's tied with all within my hands. And it wouldn't which, be Dirty Window, is that one? Or something like yeah, that? Yeah, Dirty Window sucks too. Yeah. All within my hands is the one where he just shouts kill, kill, kill a bunch of times at the end. Uh, it sucks. I remember I was listening to that yesterday and I was thinking to myself, oh God, this is nearly over. And then it wasn't. It was doing the kill, kill, kill. And then it kept it's going probably after. Saint Anger or Unnamed Feeling. They don't. Well, that feeling isn't bad, yeah. Like, I, I probably enjoy the album more than you, not as a Metallica album. You know, just the way you don't enjoy, you know, The Elder as a Kiss album. You just take it as. Like, if that had been released by some new metal album, new metal outfit you'd never heard of from 2003, you'd take it for what it was and say, oh, it's a bit of fun, kind of ironically. But it, oh, ha- no, it, ha- it has no, nothing I about... So. I think if this if this was released by Cold Chamber or Static X or one of these metal bands from that period, nobody would ever listen to it after 2006 or no, whenever no. it was that, like, new metal was dead on the vine. But if you, if you rediscovered it just, like, poking through that stuff out of some kind of morbid curiosity and you, you were in the right frame of mind, you might be a bit more charitable. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be too harsh on it, like... I like parts of it. I mean, it has none of what is good about Metallica generally, for sure. Yeah, but like, I mean, by conventional wisdom, neither do load and reload. And I like which those. I enjoy. Well, I enjoy load anyway. Yeah. Again, they're both too long. There's too much, and need more editing and all that. But like, I like load and reload because they're big Bob Rock productions. They're stadium filling kind of big riffs, and they're kind of bluesier, which I think suits Kirk Hammett more. So he, I think his solos are actually very good. On, on that stuff lots of wah pedal abuse which again I enjoy um, I would say my favourite track is Some Kind of Monster I liked St. Anger a lot when it came out the song but like even at the time 
I could not help but think the frantic was the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> that that's embarrassing. Some of those lyrics are embarrassing. Yeah, I would say there's embarrassing lyrics throughout, but just the riff of frantic is really just like undeniably stupid when you hear it. You know, you can't help but think like, oh, this is dumb. And that's I think that's the one really where the snare drum is just like at its worst because it's and you know why when you listen to the album the you live it or lie it bit so he sings it and then it goes quiet and then it's kind of like his james hetfield's voice again in one of one of the i listen to it in headphones on one of the um uh speakers you know one of the earphones and he's just kind of saying it softly when we went to see them live i don't know if you remember this during that bit kirk hammett growled the second you live it or lie it which was a total again just took me out of the moment i was like the thing is i have to say like metallica live is if you haven't seen it i mean it's absolutely worth your while and because they're such an institution it's it's actually quite easy to forget that they are absolutely incredible life i mean they were incredible live in 2003 and i went to see them on their most recent tour supporting the uh, hardwired to self-destruct album and i went along with a bunch of my friends thinking, you know, oh, yeah, Metallica, the old road show. Let's go for old times. And while it, at the concert, I was just, I forgot that they are the best. Like, they're the best hard rock band, I mean, on the go and perhaps ever. And I saw Guns N' Roses on the same tour, and I liked them a lot, and I enjoyed the concert a lot, but they could not touch Metallica. You know, and it was in it was in the same thing. It was a stadium show, you know, in a big sixty thousand seater baseball stadium. And I felt like Guns N' Roses didn't fill it the way Metallica did. Just James Hetfield opens his legs as wide as he possibly can with <laughs> yeah. the big explorer guitar. He destroys the stage like a colossus. <laughs> yeah, and it's Did you watch any of their with his faces? Lockdown videos. Oh yeah, I certainly did. I've been lapping up all their live videos, uh yeah. Uh, during the lockdown period. I, they're just so good. Like, especially if I'm working on the computer and as a teacher, you know, all my teaching is now online. So I'm grading papers and sending feedback out to students, or whatever. I've very frequently had just these, you know, Metallica live shows that they've been releasing on YouTube every week on in the background. And it's just, it's awesome stuff. And no tracks from St. Anger. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's all good. Well, we'll wrap it up with that, Don. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Do you have any creative projects, as always, you'd like to uh, promote? So, throughout the lockdown, I'm doing an obscure Kiss riff of the day on my Facebook page. Uh, so I've done actually 30 in a row, if you can believe it. Um, so I'll be doing another one today. It'll be number 31. It'll be probably in the mid-30s by the time you hear this. So if by any chance you can stomach a Kiss riff of the day, uh, Kiss riff a day, well then, look me up on Facebook. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Hi folks, it's Kian here. Just wanted to say if you've made it this far, thank you very much for sticking around and thank you for listening. Well, you may have noticed that some of our episodes uh, recently have been ones in which we've been, you know, ranging a little further afield with our topics, I guess. We've been doing a lot of things that um, don't always or necessarily 
fit in with our core theme of uh, focusing on uh, strange beliefs. I guess one of the reasons for that is uh, during the lockdown, I've been looking for things that are maybe a little bit lighter to talk about, but also because so many of my friends are housebound at the moment, uh, a lot more people have been reaching out with ideas for episodes, uh, a lot of people who've been excited to talk about things. Now, I do recognise we're heading a little bit down into the nostalgia rabbit hole a little bit. We tend to be talking about things we liked from when we we were younger. Um, well, really, I'm happy to have some stuff to talk about that's a bit of fun, especially during this time. And I'm very lucky enough to have a lot of friends who are very knowledgeable and interesting and have cool things to say about interesting topics. So I think as long as we're all locked down, uh, I'm very happy to have that. So I do encourage anyone listening, if you have a subject uh, you think would be suitable for the show, uh, whether you're a friend of ours or not, we'd love to hear about it. And if it kind of fits in, I, I think we'd be happy to talk about it. So uh, secondly, I do think when you get into these topics enough, there is still um, aspects of them which fit into the way in which we think about culture, the way in which we interpret the world and the way in which we decide what we believe. So I have been enjoying going through some of these older topics, so hopefully you have too. Anyway, all the usual things apply. Uh, reviews really help, retweets and um, shares on any kind of social media really, really uh, help as well. And we can be found in all the usual places. We're more active in some than others, but we are... Uh, probably Twitter at the moment is the best, uh, which is at Strange Ireland. We're not using Instagram too much anymore, but we are there where we're Wide Atlantic Weird. And kind of in between, we're on Facebook where we are Wide Atlantic Weird podcast. So uh, once again, stay safe and thanks for listening. <laughs>